Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, Homebrew All-Stars, and the forthcoming Simple Homebrewing. Oh. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. And on today's episode, well, we're going to do all of our usual things here. You know, we're going to go to the pub life and talk a couple of controversies. Well, actually, really one big controversy that hit recently, along with some news about craft brewing in America. Before we head off to the brewery to go talk, well, to talk a fundraiser and just how you can take part in it. And then uh, in the lounge, well, I'm back in Long Beach. I'm talking to Dan Sunstrom of 10 Mile Brewing Company. You can go learn how this little family brewery got started and uh, who their very quiet neighbors are. And then, of course, we give you a quick tip. We'll answer some questions and we'll give you something other than beer and we'll get you on your way to beery goodness. So uh, before we do all that, we need to take a little break here so you can listen to a message from some of the people who make this show possible. Stick around. We're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners... Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, thanks for sticking around. We appreciate it, and so do our sponsors. Before we get going, we have a few announcements, and Drew's going to kick it off. And, of course, last week we had a brand new episode of The Brew Files, Brew Files Episode 50, A Year of Beer, where Denny and I sit down. We talk about all things seasonal and beer and, well, just how to get on the stick and actually know when to brew for when you want something at a particular time. So go give that a listen. Yeah, and uh, also we want to let you know about some things coming up here in March. It's coming scarily fast. March 22nd and 23rd, I'm going to be at the Brew Your Own Boot Camp in Asheville, North Carolina. Marshall Schott from Brewlosophy and I will be teaching a class about homebrew experimentation. There's going to be a bunch of other great people there too. Chris White, Gordon Strong, John Palmer. So if you have some free time in March and you want to learn more about brewing, 
Head to Asheville, North Carolina. Not a bad place to be. You can sign up at byobootcamp.com and please enter the code experimental when you check out. We'll get a little bit of money to help support the podcast. And now don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It does help people find us. Click the ahabrewswag.com, use code experimentalbrew, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and giving us a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this uh, last month here is... It is Nowzad, a great, great organization based in Afghanistan. Started to help the soldiers there with the animals that they adopted. And uh, now they're helping the soldiers bring those animals home. They're teaching veterinary to the people there. Uh, you know, it's... It's soldiers and it's pets, and we would love it if you could kick a couple bucks their way via the Patreon link on our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. I guess we ought to tell you that, huh? You know what, Denny? I think that's enough announcements, and I think it's time to go have a beer. Well, maybe for you, we'll see what I'm going to be drinking. Time to head over to the pub. Please listen to these messages from our sponsors. Stick around, and we're going to be right back. Yakima Chief Hops, formerly known as YCH Hops, is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest, with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is thrilled about the release of their new innovative product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased brew house yield. Visit YakimaChief.com to learn more. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Autumn has arrived, and so has the opportunity to brew new seasonal styles. Yeast's robust and ruddy private collection offers a fresh pairing of strains for cooler days and palates seeking more body and complexity without compromising approachability. 2782 Starro Prague Lager produces exceptional malt-forward German and Bohemian-style lagers. 1581 Belgian Stout will complement the ester-forward strong ales and other specialty styles. And 9097 Old Ale Blend brings English heritage to your glass with a blend of Saccharomyces and a little Britannomyces to emulate traditional British strong ales and barley wines. These strains are available October through December at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. We're sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever you are, and we're having a couple drinks. Uh, what are you having today, Drew? Uh, I'm having my first Sierra Nevada celebration of the season. 
oh man, I am so looking forward to that. Yep, it's one of those things that I always look forward to every year, and now it's here, so I'm enjoying it. Oh man, so what do you think? Oh, I think it's Cyrano at a celebration. Not, not as good as last year, right? It never is. <laughs> I mean, they've certainly dumbed down the hops. I mean, it's not as hoppy as it used to be. Yeah, right. Uh, for those of you who aren't in on the joke, that's what you have to say every year when Celebration comes out, is that it's not as good as last year's. And then somebody will say, no, it's not. Anyway. And and for you, Sir Denny? Well, uh, I am into my second week of no beer due to my recent uh, hip operation. So I'm sitting here drinking a delicious glass of apple juice that we pressed from our own apples. And let me tell you, it is delicious. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the cider that we made from it will be also when I have a chance to try it. So uh, I'm taking it easy for a week. Uh, at first, I didn't think it was going to be any problem to give up beer for a while, and it really wasn't. Now I'm starting to really, really wish I had a beer. And I've got probably another week or two ahead of me before I can I can actually have one. So... Yes, remember, boys and girls, beer and painkillers don't mix. That's right, that's right. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I'm dropping a whole bunch of weight so that when I start drinking again, uh, I'll have a fresh start. There we go. Now, of course, while we're having these beers, I think we have to touch on what has been the biggest beer story of, you know, the last, I don't know, <laughs> week and a half or so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All kicked off by you know, a firestorm of accusations posted to beeradvocate.com. Uh, Hayes, Hayes and Pastry Stout, favorite of the universe, at least in Boston area, Trillium has come under massive fire. Uh, <laughs> Denny, you yeah. want to talk about this? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it some. Uh, they uh, pretty much uh, moved to a new location, and all the retail shop employees, the people that you see when you uh, go in to like buy some beer or swag to take with you, were given a $3 an hour pay cut when they moved uh, on the reasoning that they would be getting tips and that would make up their wage to the $11 an hour that is technically uh, required. So, well, to, to, spell it, uh, to spell it out completely, I mean, the retail employees at uh, Trillium, and remember, Trillium is now operating multiple locations and getting ready to open up a farmhouse brewery. It's an expanding business. But the retail location uh, employees at the previous area had been getting $8 an hour, which is still less than minimum wage, but it, they were considered to be tipped employees. And in Massachusetts, you're allowed to pay a minimum wage to tipped employees of $3.75 per hour. You know, with the assumption being that, yeah, the tips make it up and, and you get above the minimum wage level. So Trillium, apparently when they made the move, they asked a, a handful of their veteran employees to take a pay cut from $8 per hour to $5 per hour. Which is nuts. Yeah, it is. It true, truly, truly is. Uh, number one, the first thing I thought of when I saw this is, who the heck tips retail employees? Yeah, keep in mind, these are, I mean, this isn't like a bartender handing you and pouring you a pint of beer. This is, you know, you go to Trillium, you go, you buy a case of four packs, you know, for $22 a four pack. Yikes. And, you know, the person who's handing you the pallet or the case of beers, that's the person who's now being paid $5 an hour. And, the, and they're talking, oh, yeah, no, we pulled tips and all this. I'm like, it would, I am super conscientious about tipping, right? You know, I got, the, I got yeah. the tipping charts in my head. I know exactly what to do. My rule of thumb is I will tip if I'm not sure if I should tip just because. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same way. And, yeah, it would never, for the life of me, 
occur to tip a retail employee who's selling me a case of beer. I mean, look, look at it this way. Imagine you walked into a greeting card shop and bought, bought a birthday card for somebody. Would you give the person who sold you that greeting card a tip? I, I really, really doubt it. And this, that's pretty much what we're looking at here, too. And I just, it, their argument makes no sense to me. Yeah. Well, and of course, there were other accusations, and Trillium's responded, but there were other accusations that weren't actually addressed in the responses. And all the responses were sort of very, you know, tepid, you know, passed through layers of lawyers and PR people sort of massaging it and neutralizing any sort of, I don't know, genuine human emotion. And they, they, there were a couple of other accusations that were there that they never addressed, one of which was that the growler fills that you could get at Trillium were filled from end-of-the-run kegs, you know, the, what they called the troub kegs, because they were the last ones out of the tank, so they had a lot of extra troub in them. And the accusation was basically, oh, yeah, they let them settle for an extra week in the keg, and they fill the growlers from those. You know, so kind of lower-quality beer. Um, or the other one was also using problematic or lower-quality beer to make their frozen beer slushies. Now, Denny, we never actually talked about the frozen beer slushy trend because I think we were hoping if we ignored it, we wouldn't have to do anything about and, it. Yeah, if I have anything to say about it, we never will talk about it. Yeah, but they they were making beer slushies, and there was a further accusation not only using lower quality beer for it, you know, which okay, yeah, I kind of get. But there was also a further accusation that apparently they had one that was a Mexican sunrise, uh, and they were telling their employees to tell people that they were aged in tequila barrels, and and that's where the tequila flavor come from. But there is the accusation laying out there that they were actually adding tequila to the beer to sort of goose the tequila flavor. And, and that think, is a big no-no for federal law. Yeah, I mean, breweries are not allowed to do that. That That, is, that moves you into different tax brackets. It, it, it plays havoc. You have to have different licenses. Uh, years ago, when people started doing the bourbon barrel stout thing, you, know, you could get a lot of wet barrels, and those wet barrels would already have bourbon in them. And that would infuse into the beer, and so there was a lot of actual early questions in the early day of that, whether or not that violated you know, TTB standards and whatnot. Fortunately for the industry, the TTB decided that that didn't violate anything. So the tequila thing is massive, if actually you know true, but of course they'd have to have proof of it and everything else and uh, not addressed in any of the stuff. But yeah, it was, it was really sort of... It was really sort of a weak response from trillium i thought and yeah when i when i read it man it's kind of like uh yeah we did this and we we're allowed to do that and other than that we're a great company it's been around for a long time and man, they in no way explained or justified their actions uh to my satisfaction yeah i mean they eventually did back uh, walk back some of that stuff where they talked about hey you know uh, yeah, you know, this is probably, this probably wasn't the right thing to do, but, you know, and they restored the wages of the employees who were still around who had taken that pay cut, but a lot of people left. Go figure. Um, yeah. and so what I think is kind of interesting and will be interesting to watch is, like we said, Trillium's kind of been, you know, a hot to trot brewery, you know, kind of one of the, the big, uh, you know, sort of the big, uh, Haze Boy, uh, loved, uh, breweries. And they were already getting some flack from, their customers because they changed yeast and so therefore changed the fermentation profile. And so people complaining that the beers weren't quite as good or up to snuff. And that was one thing. But now with this added into it, 
I was seeing a lot of social media responses of people begging off from ever buying from them again. Social media response being what it is, we'll actually see whether or not it actually has a real impact. Yeah, right, exactly. But the the one that amazed me was I saw more than one response out there of people talking about like how over the past you know three four years or you know however long uh, Trillium has been around, they've spent over four to five thousand dollars on Trillium <laughs> beer, which that's that's amazing and kind of scary, and I'd go as far as saying sick. Yeah. I, what? What are you people doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come on. Uh, you know, I mean, look, if we're talking about, you know, four, four packs for $22, uh, homebrewing suddenly does become very economical, even with your labor involved. So it will be interesting to see what happens because of this. Uh, I, I, I suspect, like many other corporate PR disasters, Trillium will take a brief hit for this, and then, you know, as long as they stay the course and people still love their beer, they'll bounce right back. Yeah, but hopefully, hopefully with a better eye towards better employee treatment. Yeah, I would, I would love to see them deal with this properly and continue being a strong business. But they're going to have to, like, make some changes in their whole theory of what they do and how they do it. Well, and this does actually point to sort of a larger thing that's going on in the industry where, I mean, let's face it, most of the breweries that, that we have, and we'll talk about this in a second, most of the breweries that we have in the country are very, very small. They're small, small, small businesses. So, you know, the idea of employee health insurance and equitable wages and all that sort of stuff, it's a bit of a dicey issue in the craft beer world. You know, we have this sort of rosy picture of like, you know, who we're supporting and why we're supporting them, etc. Uh, but you look at... Yeah, you know, the treatment of the employees and the pay of the employees, it becomes a little bit more dodgy. And yeah. it, particularly when you compare it to, say, like the business practices of the people that we'd love to bag on in this podcast, ABI, you know, and the other big guys, you know, where if you're a brewer for them, yeah, you make decent wages and you have health insurance and a proper HR department. Uh, so as much as I love to give them hell, sometimes it might not be a bad idea. At least practice-wise yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you're never going to go wrong by treating people right. Yeah, treat your employees right, people. It's a good yeah, idea. Really, that's right. Okay, I think we've proselytized enough, don't you? Yeah, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> but now, speaking of the number of small breweries that are out there, uh, while we were down in Australia, they've now reported that we've crossed over the 7,000 brewery mark. We're... At over 7,000, 7,082, according to Bart Watson, who's the BA's uh, chief e economist. Um, and that there's still, uh, there's still, uh, I think, another 2,000 breweries in planning, which is kind of scary. And how many of them are planning to close, do you suppose? I don't know. I mean, we are starting to see some more closures and brands being shut down and whatnot. But, I mean, still, we're at a much higher rate of opening than we are at closing still. So we're getting closer and closer to that magical mark, or at least what I kind of will consider to be a magical mark, which is 10,000. I think the, the brewing industry will be a very interesting and different creature when we're at 10,000 breweries. But still, <laughs> stop and think about this, folks. I mean, what was it, eight years ago that we were at 2,000? Yeah, just what I was going to say, man. So keep that in mind. That's a hell of a growth pattern. 
And again, it comes back to the point that, uh, like we were just talking about, um, these are a lot of very small businesses where, I mean, a lot of times, hell, even the owners aren't paying themselves that well. Um, so, you know, and I just, uh, I was in a Facebook conversation with somebody the other day and at least two brewery owners were talking about how they've never been paid. Uh, you know, they're doing it because of the joy of sharing their great beer. Uh, and they're paying, I'm actually it was in relation to the story. They're saying, I'm paying the employees. I'm not paying myself. Folks, I got to tell you, that's not sustainable. Yep. Well, we'll see what happens. But I think we should finish these beers and we should go talk about brewing a beer. Okay, you finish your beer. I'll suck down my juice. How's that? There you go. I'll race you. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break here while we head over to the brewery. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, a great brewery doing a great thing. So please stick around. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Well, welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening to those messages from more of our fine sponsors. Remember, tell them that you heard them here on Experimental Brewing. They love you. We love you. We love everybody. And speaking of loving everybody, unless you've been, I don't know, in a foreign country away from the Internet or, you know, deep in a dark hole in the ground, you know that here in California, at least, we got hit by two massive, massive wildfires simultaneously. Uh, the one down near me is the Wolseley Fire. It's actually been put under control, and in terms of overall damage, was relatively okay, particularly for being in such a populated area. However, up in Northern California, particularly near our good friends at Sierra Nevada and Chico, there was a second camp. Uh, there was a second fire called the Camp Fire, and the Camp Fire was a nasty piece of business. I think they finally got it under control. Um, yeah, it's a hundred percent controlled now. Yep. And the campfire is probably 
uh, best known on uh, in the news for having, well, essentially laid waste to the town of Paradise, California, a town of twenty to thirty thousand wiped off the map. And at one point in time, at the height of its growth rate, it was swallowing more than another football field in volume or in acreage per second. That's that is just hard to even comprehend, man. Uh, I had a chance to spend a night at a friend's house in Paradise uh, oh, a few years back, uh, and uh, what a lovely, lovely little community it was. Yeah, and so obviously whenever we have these sorts of things happen, you, you, you want to see the community to come together. And brewing, of course, we do always say is about community. And given that Sierra Nevada is right there, right down the road in Chico and had employees threatened by the fire, had employees lose their property in the fire and actually shut down for a while due to the fire. Uh, I have to say Sierra Nevada's uh, response to this whole thing has been off the wall. (laughs) I mean, this is a company that has always been really committed to their community and environmentally conscious and just stunningly good people. And now they're making a really, really good show of this by putting out a beer that uh, is called Resilience, and the proceeds from it will be going to the community. But not only are they brewing it, they've released the recipe so that other brewers can brew it and donate their proceeds to the community of Paradise also. And what can I say? And not only that, but I mean, Sierra Nevada is also donating the ingredients for the recipe. And right. yeah, the, the one condition is it has to be taproom only sales and that it, um, yeah, 100% of the proceeds, not the profits, the proceeds, you know, the actual um, amount of money that you take back across the bar, uh, goes into this fund. Uh, and Sierra Nevada even went so far as to release a homebrew recipe. Uh, it's up on the, uh, AHA's website. We'll include a link to it, but it, just so that everybody knows what the recipe is. This is their, uh, Resilience Butte County IPA. So the recipe is for uh, you know a, a hearty IPA at 10.65, and I mean it's simple. You know you're talking 90% of uh, two row and 10% of a crystal 60. If you run the numbers on it, it's actually more crystal malt I think I've seen in an IPA than any time in about the past decade. Well, but you're not paying attention to Sierra Nevada then, because this is very, very typical for their beers. Uh, the the pale ale, the celebration, the torpedo, all of those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's not it's not a trendy IPA like a lot of people are making. This is a good old fashioned West Coast IPA. But yeah, so just two row and Crystal sixty, and then all the hopping is essentially a mix of Centennial and Cascade. So not only, you know, is this a recipe that's easily accessible and a bit of a throwback, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it really does kind of call back to the foundation of the IPA here in America, you know, particularly out of Sierra Nevada, uh, you know, and that whole area. And actually, in some ways to me, one of the things I want to do is I want to try this because this feels like it's right around the corner from that celebration uh, that I just had. Yeah, you know, I always uh, brew a batch of the celebration recipe every winter, and I think that this is going to be the one that I brew instead this year. And I also want to let you know that the fine, fine folks at Pico Brew are going to be putting this out as a Pico pack and donating the proceeds from that also. Mm. So uh, if you are a Pico brewer, then you can uh, get a hold of a pack from them and brew this on your Pico system. Yeah, and can we talk just one interesting thing? Since everybody talks about, you know, so USO5 and Y East 1056 and White Labs 001 kind of being related to the Sierra Nevada strain, um, 
you would think that when the yeast choices are put out there, you know, hey, you know, you should use one of those. But what I thought was interesting is in the recipe, they actually specify using Imperial's dry hop yeast or your American ale of, of choice. Yeah, you know, and I haven't used that Imperial dry hop yeast, so I don't really know what kind of effects it would bring to the beer. But since uh, we know that uh, Sierra Nevada has used the Chico strain in all of their IPAs for a long time, I would assume that, number one, the Imperial dry hop yeast is pretty darn close to it. And number two, if you don't have access to it, one of those other ones is going to work just as well. Yeah. So here's the thing, uh, boys and girls. Go and grab your brew kettles. Go make a, a batch of this. We'll make sure to include a link to the recipe on the website in the show notes. And, you know, if you're so inclined, obviously, as homebrewers, we can't sell our beer and raise money uh, for this effort. However, they do actually include a link directly to the uh, to the Golden Valley Community Bank Foundation that's collecting the money for this. So that if you want to do your own little part and add a little bit of extra dough into the help for Paradise and Butte County, you can. You know, and there are a lot of... Uh organizations and causes out there that can use your help. This is a really good one. Uh, and, you know, help out if you if you can. This uh, this hit a lot of people really hard. It's right before Christmas time. So, you know, look at where your charitable giving is going and uh, really, really consider making a contribution here. Yeah, and join the over 1,000 breweries that are doing this, which is the other part that's really impressive. Yeah, and not only that, uh, don't just brew it. Go out and buy some, too. I mean, you know, do whatever you can to support Sierra Nevada. These are great people making a real quality product with a lot of integrity. Amen. All right. right I think it's time to go lounge. You need a comfy chair anyway. Yep, I can use a comfy chair, and uh, Long Beach sounds nice and warm. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. Over to the lounge. Uh, we got our feet up and we are lounging hard in here. And uh, Drew, you made a trip down to Long Beach recently, did a bunch of different places there, and uh, one of them was 10 Mile Brewing. So uh, before we listen to the interview, why don't you tell us just a little bit about it? An important point before we get hoisted on our on, on pikes uh, for having said Long Beach so many times, 10 Mile Brewing Company is actually the product of a father-son home brewing team, uh, Dan and Jesse Sundstrom. And they are actually located in the tiny little enclave of Signal Hill, which is a town that is completely surrounded by Long Beach. So, Long Beach okay. area. 
Okay. <laughs> but thanks. As, as someone who lives out in the middle of a tiny area that's nowhere near anything, I would never have known that. I know. But uh, we talked about that a little bit. But I got a chance to sit down and talk to Dan the day after Thanksgiving and, you know, had, had a nice uh, pint of beer with him and talked, you know, sort of, you know, what caused him to actually get into brewing, how that all happened. Uh, why the brewery itself and what his hopes are for the place and particularly what his uh, philosophy is. And I think for a lot of people, it's going to be kind of interesting because he's skewed away from trying to do the super IPA heavy, nothing hazy, no pastry type thing. His focus is on doing traditional beers with traditional execution and trying to do as many things as close to sort of what he thinks is accurate for that particular beer. And I think it's no better reflected than with the beer that we have and we talk about in this interview, which is his Kentucky Common. So very interesting. Sit back, learn a little bit. You can learn something about Kentucky Common, and you can also uh, learn a great new place to go down in Signal Hill, California. By the way, this is uh, this is really nice. I like the the little smoky character and everything else that's going on in there. Yeah, this this is uh, one we've won several awards for. It's According to uh, 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 Great American Beer Fest judges, it doesn't fall into style, but <laughs> we, <laughs> but um, it's because we're this is our first year we entered into a commercial competition, and uh, so we were you know super excited being in our first competition there and uh, sitting in the award ceremony as the historical styles went by. Anyway, we love it. We're not changing anything about it. We had um, Robert Flores, who is a Robert a uh, writer for the uh, OC weekly came in uh, early on and had it. And he, uh, he later wrote that about uh, two sips in, he was ready to dismiss the beer. And then about halfway through it, he started kind of catching onto the nuances. And, and uh, by the end of it, he ended up making his beer of the month and doing a big article on it. So um because of that, we had a lot of people coming in asking for that, and now it's become one of our most popular beers. And if you go on Wikipedia, we're about one of a dozen commercial breweries in the country that produce this style. So uh, we love it. And for the record, for listeners, uh, what we are drinking is the Hidden Hollow and is your Kentucky Common at 10 Mile Brewing Company. Yes. And so, uh, hello, sir. Introduce yourself to everybody <laughs> okay. now that you've been talking. Yeah, yeah. You got jumped right in and, and forgot the formalities. But uh, yes, I am Dan Sundstrom, and um, we are 10 Mile Brewing. We are a family-owned business in Signal Hill, California. Uh, Signal Hill, for those of you who don't know where it's at, is totally surrounded by Long Beach, I sometimes call it the Vatican of Long Beach because it's like on a hill in the middle of another city. Um, so we started this venture about uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, well, we started it way before that, but we've been open coming up on a year and a half. And um, it's um, it's been fantastic. The community has just supported us. And uh, there's an annoying fly here that keeps landing on me. <laughs> It's a brewery. <laughs> yes, it happens. But uh, yeah, we're we're thrilled, and and like I say, we're a family business. My son and myself are co-brewers, and uh, more and more, I'm handing off the uh, the responsibilities to him, and and kind of being a uh, quality control guy, and uh, checks and job. balances. <laughs> yeah, and he can get up there and work the mash paddle. We're 
a year in, we're already opening a second location coming up in uh, probably January, February at the new Steelcraft in Bellflower that's opening. If you would have asked me a year and a half ago, do you think you'd have another location a year in? And it was like, no way. But we were sought out and we felt uh, just thrilled to be given the opportunity. So we're going to go with it. <laughs> I was going to say, it seems like, you know, like you and Long Beach Beer Lab. And I mean, we're starting to see more of, you know, the little local neighborhood breweries starting to get those second locations. So yeah. Um, and now is, it, is there going to be a brewery at the second location? No, no. It's just satellite tasting room. Right. So you guys are going to still be pushing the beer from the system that we are sitting, you know, right next to here. Uh, how big, how big of a system are we talking about? So we have a 10 barrel brew house and a double length fermenters, so 20 barrel fermenters. Um, we have a little bit of space to, to drop in a few more. So we are going to be doubling production here coming up very quickly. And, uh, so we've, we've actually already started some of that. As you can see, it's a tight space. Mm -hmm. And, um, when we started out, it's like, wow, we have a ton of room here. And that all went away very quickly. And now we're scrambling for space, uh, the next space over or started talks, uh, with the other neighbors about, uh, getting warehouse space from them. So it's, yeah, it's just taken off like crazy. Hey, nice, nice building you have here. Can we have some more of it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, that's always a good problem to have. So when did you discover the idea of good beer? I was traveling up in Bend, Oregon. I have a high school buddy here from Long Beach who had moved up there and uh, we were on vacation uh, driving through town and then uh, camping. And so I, we were camping like 10 minutes outside of town and he said, Hey, I'll bring a growler, my homebrew out. And it was like, well, okay, whatever. Sure. Um, had not ever had homebrew. This is about 12 years ago, I was happy with my Henry Weinhards and my Heineken. And, <laughs> you know, that's what we had then. He had this orange Cascade Ale that he had made. And it was amazing. I, I always uh, say, I I don't know if it was the, the river and the mountains and the stars and kind of everything just being perfect that night. <laughs> but it was like, wow, you made this? And so... um we had that that night. Next day, I went back to his house. He showed me his setup. He was, you know, going through ingredients, and and I was always interested in kind of food chemistry. And um, early on, I, in choosing a career path, I was at one time going to be a chef. I was also very interested in photography. So, uh, well, I ended up going the photography path, but eventually became a food photographer. So I ended up blending kind of my two loves together. Anyway, the, the, the chemistry part of it was, was fascinating to me. So, uh, I came home, I uh, got a setup and, and started brewing, brewed that same recipe. He gave me orange cascade ale and, um, People liked it. It was encouraging and I liked it. And so it just kept going. We eventually started, uh, you know, I got involved in Long Beach Homebrewers and doing the, the, the club competitions, got into more serious competitions, into national competitions. We ended up doing pretty good. Kind of all culminated with my, uh, my daughter's wedding. We had made uh, about five different beers for her wedding and had two, 300 guests, something like that. And on the groom side, there happened to be two restaurateurs in the, in the audience. And uh, the next day we got phone calls. How can I get your beer in my restaurant? <laughs> it was like, well, you can't, you can't, but you can, but you can help me get there. <laughs> exactly. So we knew we had something. And so not long after that, we decided to make the leap 
and um, got the lease on this building and jumped in. We built everything here ourselves. We saw cut the floors. We excavated. We did our own glycol. Uh, friends helped, uh, you know, fly the, the the chiller up on the roof and and you know, drilling corn for gas lines. The whole shebang. We built all these tables. We built the bar. Uh, tap towers, everything. So it's it's been a real labor of love. I think one of my favorite aspects is in the bathroom the uh, the very steampunky feeling, uh, <laughs> the water faucet valves. That's uh, half of our Yelp reviews have the bathroom mentioned in them. <laughs> it's it's barley and the bathrooms and, uh, and well, then the beer. <laughs> and and since the audience doesn't know who barley is, who is barley? Barley is our resident Akita. Who's uh, laying behind me over here? He's about 110 pounds right now, and usually likes to lodge himself right in the middle of the doorway, so you have to step over him. Uh, but he'll he'll run up on you rather quickly to greet you and give you a, a sniff, and then he'll go back to laying down again. So <laughs> Bar- Barley seems to be the professional greeter of the business. Yes, he is. <laughs> when when I, I showed up today, Barley jumped out of, out of your truck and then immediately walked over to me and headbutted me right in the legs. And was like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, here I am. Say hi. <laughs> exactly. So, so basically, it's fair to say then that a wedding – is the cause of this particular space to be here. Uh, that was a significant factor for sure. How long, how long from the time that you went, you know, maybe I should do this professionally to this space being open. Uh, well, we got the space and it took about a year and a half to build out, but it was uh, probably a year before that. And when we started seriously looking around uh, at di- different places around town, we were, were, North into to, to Paramount, Downey, Bellflower, uh, Los Alamitos, Seal Beach, San Pedro. We were all over this area. As it has it, we ended up pretty much about a 10-minute drive from my house in Lakewood. And um, it's funny, I had, I had been in this building when it was other businesses. I had seen it be a flower shop. It was a, a soccer warehouse. It was a Zumba studio. It was <laughs> all these different things. And I can find pictures online. It's funny to go back and look at it because all these walls were graffitied orange and, and black. And, and we came in and sandblasted everything out back to raw concrete. And uh, there's still remnants of it around. But um, from Zumba to beer. Yeah. <laughs> I think they put those together now. Isn't there like Zumba beer or something or well, beer yoga? I know that one. Yoga, yes. <laughs> I, but, you know, I don't know if anybody's actually made the leap to beer Zumba. I think that. I think you have to honor the market there. <laughs> I think you have to honor the heritage of this, this space and and yeah, bring that and forward. we do soccer beer too. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> one of my favorite questions to ask brewers: omitting the word balance. Describe your brewing philosophy. Brewing philosophy. Well, we we want to do um, traditional and historic styles to the best of our ability using the ingredients that we can get a hold of. And sometimes those ingredients aren't so easy to get a hold of. For instance, the Kentucky Common, um, a lot of the uh, heirloom-type grains that we use now are not just something that you can easily get a hold of. I mean, it, there's producers out there for sure. You can get it. But it's it, it takes a little extra effort to, to, to get the, the ingredients, the hops that we use. We take a lot of care in our water profiles. 
and and some people will uh, diss this, I know, but we we try to be true to the area that the 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 beer was produced. We use a, a Louisville water profile on this, so we're trying to actually place you back in Kentucky um, when this beer was originally produced. Um, but we want to do traditional styles the best we can. You know, it's it's. Um, if you look at our board, you'll see that we have uh, we have styles all over the place. We have Belgian beers. We have historical. We have the uh, IPAs, of course. Uh, we have German beers, um, stouts, barrel aids up there. So we we don't try to kind of focus on hoppy beers or, or focus on sour beers, obviously, or 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 uh, cask or, or whatever. We we are all over the place. And um, we do tons of research um, before we jump in and do a beer. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my philosophy. So historical, traditional and really kind of sticking to, you know, how things were done. Right. We don't do a lot of uh, or or any really like fruited beers or uh, anything that is out of the ordinary. Now I'm not saying we're not going to do that. We've had a lot of requests for that type of thing. And, and you kind of eventually have to, to cave on some of that. But, um, yeah, we, we try to stay pretty traditional with our beers. Sort of bucking the trend. Uh, I don't see a hazy IPA up there. Exactly. <laughs> and I actually only see one IPA and a double IPA. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, again, you know, in this day and age where it seems like you walk into a craft brewery and uh, half the board is IPAs, it's a nice, refreshing change of pace. Also, you're one of only two breweries I can think of in LA that have a milk stout on on tap. Ah, you, know, you and you and RT Rogers up in uh, Sierra Madre. Oh, okay, very good. Yeah, we we actually won a silver for that at the California uh, State Fair commercial competition so we're proud of that one too but you got to tell people the name oh yeah <laughs> dark side of the moo <laughs> of course people get it just for that <laughs> all the pink floyd fans i was gonna say never never ever doubt the the value of that so let's uh, since we've got the beer in front of us let's go ahead and talk the kentucky common because i mean this is sort of reflective of that you're just talking about having to source out the ingredients yeah so Describe the style for people and its origin. This was the most popular beer in America between about 1850 and 1890, and it came uh, with the westward migration uh, across the United States. Uh, we like to describe it as a beer that you may have been served in a saloon in the Old West. It has a very quick turnaround time. We can turn this over in about eight days. And um, that kind of plays into the lack of refrigeration back in the day. And I know some styles... Um, use a, a sour mash. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we think that was just more uh, because of the conditions that things were stored in in the day. You were, you stored in a barrel, you were probably going to end up with a sour mash beer, but we do not do that. Um, we uh, use a, a six row barley, which is a older style, unmodified uh, type of barley. Um, we use a high percentage of uh, corn in it also. Now, it just like, Flaked corn or? Yeah, it's a flaked corn. Yeah. Uh, we use a cluster hop also. Uh, that's the one that's been a little bit more difficult to uh, get these days. Um, we were down at the um, uh, BSG in, in San Diego. Not BSG, the, um, uh, the 
California Craft Brewers Association, CBA, um, last year. And we actually were asking around about it uh, because it's been difficult to get on spot sales. And there's uh, <laughs> the guys were joking is like, yeah, we grow that in our backyards to like make wreaths and stuff out of. We don't use it at a, you know, at a commercial level at all. It's ornamental. And, uh, so they've actually offered to, if we could, uh, get enough of it to start off an acre or so of, uh, as a, at a commercial level. So we've been kind of toying with that. We've been putting so much of this out. Cluster is the classic American hop. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Any, any historical stuff you go and you look at, uh, brewing logs from say, England and the uh, Australia and all those where they talk about, hey, we used American hops. They used a variety of cluster almost everywhere. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, when I first started brewing in 1999, cluster was kind of considered way old and on the way out. And I can't even imagine trying to find it now. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only uh, Native American hop that was actually grown and produced into a commercial um, variety. So uh, it's truly an American beer. Uh, 100%. Okay, what we got here in our glass, I mean, it's a, a deep dark brown, but, you know, you got that six row character, which, I mean, uh, six row, again, that's another one that's hard to find, but that was another backbone of American brewing. I mean, all of our old school recipes, yeah. uh, Budweiser still uses six, six row in, in some small percentage because that's just part of the recipe formation. Uh -huh. So I think that's probably the only reason why six row is around anymore. <laughs> it might be. Uh, you know, two, two row has come to dominate the land of brewing. Exactly. You know, when I, when I taste this, I'm like, I'm getting a little bit of a smoky character. I'm getting some of that sort of uh, blackberry cluster character mm -hmm. in there. So what other ingredients other than the six row in the corner? Uh, right we now? use a, a debittered black malt that really to, to give the, um, the uh, color there. And um, essentially that's the whole recipe. There's not a whole lot more to it. So interesting. So that, that smokiness must be coming from the, uh, from the craft and then. Exactly. We use uh, uh, some noble hop in it uh, and the, uh, bittering side but uh yeah it's it's uh saws and and um and the the cluster are the only two hops in it and how how big of a beer uh this one is what is it 5.2 i believe uh -huh. so you know sessionable from an american uh yeah. standpoint yeah, yeah oh yeah absolutely and so what what prompted you to start brewing this particular beer this came out of the long beach home breweries actually they do a monthly competition um, where, uh, it, it, they set the styles for the whole year at the beginning of the year and you can, and they do a competition every month and whoever has the most wins at the end of the year gets home brewer of the year. And, and, uh, so that's how it started out. We've had some rather, uh, well-known brewers come out of there that have gone on to, to do really well, who, who were home brewers of the year, Julian Trego of uh, Beachwood, obviously Chris, Jeez. Chris Wolowski, uh, up at uh, trustworthy. was, uh, one of our members. So yeah, it's amazing to see like, uh, LA's beer scene took so long or brewery scene took so long to develop. Cause I mean, I, I remember when I first moved here, it was like, you could get any beer in the world here. We just didn't make any of our own <laughs> beer. And LA's brewery scene has taken so long to catch up. But in the past six years, it's, you know, exploded. I think we're up to 84. Yeah, I the, think it's more than that. Yeah, I think it's like 87 or something like that. So and more every day. <laughs> hey, if, if, I'm just waiting for one to actually open up in my neighborhood. Um, the unfortunate part about being in LA, I got to drive. Okay, you developed this recipe in the, the homebrew club because it was a style of the month. Right. 
So what made you decide to do something so commercially suicidal as put it on as a, as a almost flagship or did you even expect it to be a flagship? Well, we didn't, uh, well, when we started the brewery, yeah, it had become so popular at the homebrew site and we had won so many awards with it, uh, through, through pack cup or, or LA County fair, orange County fair. It's like, let's, let's just throw this out there. And it was so well received that we just went with it. And, and, uh, it's one of our most popular beers now. It's one of those things where when you go into a business, I think you, I mean, you have a plan. Right. You have, uh, yes, we'll, we'll do these things and this will be our flagship. And you just have to listen to what the market tells you and decide, oh, no. Okay. That's what, that's what we're going with. Yep. So, and you, you talked about getting, uh, getting great write ups. I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of amazed that, that this would take off so much because I don't think of LA as being a darker beer town. Right. Yeah. I mean, most of the time it's, you know, a lot of IPA and a lot of, really pale beers yeah and and when people ask about this beer and i'm almost sorry we did it sometimes because i have told the story so many times it's like everybody asks what's a kentucky common and you got to tell the story all over again but one of the the main lines is there is it's a darker beer but it drinks very light and it's almost like an amber ale in a whale if, if you didn't actually see the color of it you would you would probably guess it's a much lighter beer than it is what yeast is it uh that's that's uh uh 001 it's just uh oh. yeah we actually originally did it with the american yeast blend uh but that wasn't so readily available at the commercial level so we just went with 001 and to me in a lot of ways what it reminds me of is a sort of a, a roastier and fruitier like a Negro Medola. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's got a lot of that Vienna character. So it's very interesting to see. I know I see, as you were saying online, other people talking about, oh, well, yeah, you got to do a sour mash. And then, of course, I wonder how historically accurate that is versus people just thinking Kentucky and bourbon. Right. And we get that question a lot, too. Oh, does that have bourbon in it? No. <laughs> um, and then the other one is, um, I also see a lot of people talking about malted corn. But as you were talking about, yeah. It's hard finding, you know, a lot of the ingredients you have. I could not imagine trying to find malted corn at the sizes that you need or in the quantities that you need. Um, and also, as a suggestion, you know, since if you're getting tired of telling the story about Kentucky Common, you do have these beautiful bare concrete walls. You could just paint the story up there. Just point to it. <laughs> there. Read it yourself. <laughs> there, there's Sir Adam. There's the story of Kentucky Common. Um, so you have been open for over a year now. Yeah. And I remember, uh, listeners of the podcast will know, I was on a, a quest to visit every L.A. County brewery uh, on the L.A. County Brewers Guild map. And I, I was coming down here to go to the Long Beach Beer Lab. And I saw a Facebook post that you guys were having, you know, like, oh, we're open and all this other stuff. I'm like, wait, what? There's How, how did I miss another brewery? Open? <laughs> and so I came in here and I think that must have been when you guys were at like the two month mark or something like that. And I just remember going home and telling people that, hey, you know, I'm actually really super impressed because as a brewery that was that young, I mean, you guys already had established like the sort of diversity of beer styles that you're doing. But I remember, I think you had a, a, a culture Pilsner on at the time. That was, was our, probably our Segway lager. Yeah. yeah. Hellas lager. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being really impressed by how crisp and clean and tight it was. Uh, which for a uh, which for a brewery that was again at that two month mark was 
very, very impressive. So when I went back to the to the Falcons, I said, hey, by the way, if you guys end up down Long Beach, make sure you go over to 10 Mile because I think you'll appreciate it. Nice. So, <laughs> but I was also really pleased to see, you know, like, I mean, you had a real happening crowd in here. How long did it take for the community to find you guys? Uh, boy, our grand opening uh, to date still has been our best day. <laughs> I mean, they sought us out. Um it's it, we've done no other advertising other than just regular social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook. We don't do Twitter or anything like that either. Um, so it's it's Long Beach was kind of that uh, beer wasteland that was between uh, South Bay and, and Orange County. And there was really two or three places uh, here for a, a 15 mile drive. Um, and so that's one of the reasons we were really thrilled to be in this area is because, uh, there, there were just, wasn't a whole lot of options here. And, uh, yeah, or, or to Belmont Brewing. Yeah. That, that, that was there too. Of course, Blackwell, he's, you know, he's the real pioneer, but, um, yeah, there just wasn't a whole lot of options. So we we chose Signal Hill here, and and uh, we just love it. Well, and you have uh, uh, nice, quiet neighbors across the street. Yes, yes. They don't bother us too much. And I love the view of the cemetery across the street, too. I think it's it's nobody's ever going to build a four-story building or a gas station over there. It's a very uh, park-like setting. And uh, I don't know if you heard about the Festival Obscura that happened there uh, earlier this year, but we did a big beer fest over in the cemetery that was uh, a benefit largely for the cemetery. It's gone through some hard times and, and ownership changes that haven't gone so well. So it's amazingly historic. Ansel Adams took took pictures in that cemetery. Uh, a lot of the founding fathers of the city are buried there. So it's, it's very cool. Coming, coming back to the beer and away from, uh, away from pouring one out for, uh, for the dear departed. Um, what has surprised you the most about making that transition from being a home brewer to being a professional brewer? Wow. Uh, I've been astounded by the, uh, the accolades that have come in. It's, I'm not the kind of guy that really uh, receives those very well. I'd much rather give praise to somebody else. So being uh, kind of in the spotlight um, is, is uncomfortable for me a lot of times. And people really have, have seek us out. And, and if we're not here, I hear about it. And so we, we came in for the first seven months and we did everything. We brewed all day. Then we'd go to the tap room and be there all night. And, uh, we were approaching burnout, mm -hmm. uh, about seven months in. We finally brought in some employees. But as soon as I was not here or some of one family member was not here, it's like, Oh, where'd you guys go? You know, you know, and, and it's almost. They, they kept coming in, but I felt like I was letting people down. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was, that was something I wasn't expecting. You know, I thought I was just going to brew great beer and everybody's going to come and enjoy themselves. The, the connection that the public puts on the brewer that, and, and they, they want to have that 
relationship and know these are the hands that actually made the beer that I'm drinking. And that's something that I hadn't even considered. So um, that's that was a big surprise to me. Well, and it's one of the things that we talked about on the podcast a lot. I think part of part of the appeal of the sort of neighborhood craft brewery, which is kind of the phase we're in now, right? I, yeah. I, I, nobody's gunning to be the next New Belgium. Everybody's right. gunning to be like, hey. <laughs> I'm my neighborhood's place to go have a beer that's made here in the neighborhood. There is a very, very strong personal connection to that business. And like, you know, part of the reason why we talk about on the podcast about, you know, what it means when breweries sell to like, say, Anheuser-Busch or something. Part of it is that, you know, I mean, you feel that personal connection. I'm glad to know that if I come here and I buy a pint, my money is coming to you. And not to some, you know, a board of directors someplace. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, so it, there is that sort of thing. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, you have to, you have to figure out a balance. Otherwise you will burn out. And yeah. Bad things happen when that happens. <laughs> yeah. So we, we choose certain days to make it, make ourselves known down here. There are busy days. We'll be here and, and make sure I go around all the tables, meet everybody, you know, greet new people, check in with my old regulars and, and they're always happy. Um, so yeah, I did, but it, it was just kind of surprising and, and wasn't part of my business plan per se to really, to do social work also. You know? <laughs> the, the plans, the plans are always great until, <laughs> until they meet reality. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of your shift, yeah, you, you've been working here at the brewery. What beer do you find yourself reaching for? I'm a hophead. You know, I, I, I love my hoppy beers and, and we only have two up there right now. Uh, typically we do have one or two more. We won't have six up there. Um, but our, our trail marker, which is one of our, our, our flagship, which, uh, just blew the other day. Um, oh, actually it's back up there. You missed that one. Yeah. So it actually are three IPAs up there now. There's, there's a, it's behind the bell. You didn't, oh, you didn't well, see the, bear, the bearskin and the, and our trail marker and the, and the double domino. I, I was enticed by the milk scout and the alt beer. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll usually grab a hoppy beer. Yeah. Our, our bearskin, um, we just, uh, did a, a canning run on that. And, and so, uh, that, that was our, our first canning line. So. That's one of my favorites. I'll, I'll reach for one of those. Or um, if I if I'm just not in the mood, I'll go for the um, go for the uh, loggers too. Uh, we had a a sunny side pilsner that was named after the uh, cemetery over there uh, that, that just blew, and uh, our uh, Segway lager is is one I'll go for too. Well, and loggers are a very common theme amongst brewers. It seems. Yeah. <laughs> Since we since we always talk on the podcast about non beery things too, because obviously we are not just beer people. In We're theory, multifaceted. In theory, <laughs> what is a non beery thing that you find yourself obsessed with? Uh, lately, actually, it's been ancestry, <laughs> which is um, kind of interesting. I um, I got into that. I've I've always been an antique kind of guy and a collector and. My kids will actually call me a hoarder, but uh, uh, I have a lot of old stuff around. You kind of see the safe back here that's uh, just full of uh, stuff I didn't want to throw away. <laughs> and, and now it's serving a function. It's decoration. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'll and, – and, and actually, it's fun that people come into the brewery, and, and I have a drawer full of old newspapers, and they'll – Oh, there's like, and these are original papers and I want people to handle them and pull them out. You know, it's a, 
you know, the President Kennedy is shot or, or Hindenburg disaster or, <laughs> and particularly looking at old advertisements, you know, you used to be able to buy like a 44 Magnum for twenty nine ninety nine, you know, at Dooley's, <laughs> which is a local uh, old Long Beach hardware store, but um, just fun stuff like that. And, and I, it's fun to see people pull that stuff out and go through it. But, uh, well, and yeah. you, ha- you have the requisite safe that nobody yeah. can move. Yeah. <laughs> you have that 2000 pound safe, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, back to the ancestry thing. Yeah. Just, I get sucked up to what you can find out about your family. And, and, uh, it, it's fascinating when you can dig up old records and, and it'll rabbit trail, you know, you'll, you'll find, uh, uh, you know, a service record of, of, uh, of, you know, an, an old uncle or something and found you're looking at his address and it's like, wait, you used to live next door to my other uncle, you know, and, and you realize that there was a family relationship there that you never knew was there. And, and that'll go down other rabbit trails. And it's, I find it fascinating. Other people will just go, oh, that's boring, but, uh, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. And, and, and and with all the other people doing it in the world too, you'll find other family members who, you know, a picture will come up of your parents in high school that, that I've never seen that picture before, and it just it it just takes you. It keep going and going and going. So and I've traced my ancestry back into I think the oldest ones like back into the 1500s now. So it's some people have done that for generations already. So they already have it. They oh here's that book. You don't need to do this, but I don't have any of that. <laughs> yeah, my, and my mom is doing the same thing, and I think she just discovered a whole branch of our like a very big branch of our family in like Michigan. Yeah, and we knew nothing about it. We're like what? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, Dan, before uh, before we take off, I mean, uh, any last words that you want to say, you know, about the brewery, about Ten Mile, about its place here, and what you hope for? You know, it's we are a a family brewery, and we we uh, love our community, and we one of the the huge aspects of even creating this place was to be able to have people come together and just have a conversation. We are not a sports bar. You don't see 20 TVs up here. The art is pretty minimal and it brings me no more joy to have two people who are strangers come and sit at the bar and have a conversation with each other. And I've seen them walk out with their arms around each other. Like they've known each other their whole lives time saying, you know, let's get together and do this again and, and create a relationship and, and talk about real things. And of course, you know, they're going to sit on their phones and, <laughs> you know, and, but, um, yeah, just seeing real conversation happen between people is what a huge part of creating this was all about. Yeah. Um, one of the things I am pleased as punch about with the, the brewery movement is the number of breweries that are like, that have completely eschewed, yeah, you know, the idea of having TVs and, and yeah. whatnot. Yeah, it's it's kind of the wanting to have the old English pub feel, you know, where this this is where real news, uh, you know, gets shared and 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 uh, and concepts get created and that kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you so much for taking oh, uh, taking a little bit pleasure. of time here today. <laughs> Glad thank, to be here. Thank you, Drew, and thank you for making such a wonderful beer. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Well, and hey, you know, guys, don't forget that if you are 
in the Signal Beach, Long Beach area, you know, make sure to stop by, you know, 10 Mile Burn Company, uh, not hard to find, just plug it right there into your phone and you'll get yourself a chance to have a really interesting, diverse and well-executed series of beers. Man, I got to tell you, this sounds like my kind of brewery. Oh yeah, you know, just a couple of IPAs, you know, two IPAs and a, and a double IPA, and then everything else he has a. In addition to the Kentucky Common, he had a really killer alt beer on, and that was right. nice to see. Uh, we talk about it in the interview too that he's one of two milk stouts I can think of in LA County, and it's also really tasty. So definitely, I highly encourage everybody to go check out what Dan and Jesse and the rest of the family are doing down there at Ten Mile Brewing Company. I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. So if you're not going to be in Long Beach, uh, <laughs> go to Ten Mile instead and have a beer. There you go. Yeah, dive into dive into Signal Hill and also wave hello to all the the people residing in the cemetery across the street. <laughs> and if they wave back, then maybe you've had one too many beers. Either that, or you suddenly become part of Fear the Walking Dead. <laughs> all right, I think it's time that we get this show done. How about all right, do- me too. Go ahead. How about we do some questions, or a question, I should say. Yeah, let's do that. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we have a question, and Drew's going to see if he can come up with an answer for it. We have a quick tip. We have something other, and then we are out of here. So please stick around. We're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. It is time for the wrap-up segment of the show here. We're going to start off with a question that we got from Chris in Wisconsin about his holiday ale. Take it, Drew. And so Chris writes in on the website. He says, I have a question on my first attempt at a small batch, three-gallon holiday spice ale. Malt bill is two rows, small amounts of Caravienna, flaked rye, and four ounces of victory. Water is RO with a profile favoring maltiness. Hops are uh, Willamette at first wort, uh, 18 grams of Santium at 10 minutes. Spices, 3 grams of cinnamon stick, 14 grams of crushed coriander, and 14 grams of orange peel, all at 5 minutes. Uses the Omega Labs uh, Vos Quebec, uh, fermented in a 5-gallon corny keg with uh, open fermentation for 40 hours at 67, capped and CO2 added to seal the lid, and then actually using a spunding valve at 15 PSI before driving the heat up. Uh, first heat increased to 79 degrees. Says they sampled and tested it uh, after a week. Uh Still a little mild, not much bitterness or hop aroma, and a slight hint of coriander, otherwise no cinnamon or orange, which surprises me as I used both ingredients in other brewers. Since I disabled heat a day ago and let it cool to basement air temperature at 56, it is winter here in Wisconsin, my usual procedure after 
final gravity is reached usually seven to 14 days is to put the keg in the chiller, force carb, and then keep sampling until I think it's ready to serve. So final gravity was 10 to 14. I've used roughly 20 and a nice short, actual, but vigorous 30 minute boil. So he says, I have a couple of questions. Should I let this holiday ale age more, hoping its flavor will improve? Or two, I was considered racking to a serving keg with additional spices. So, Chris, I will say, I don't think you're going to gain anything by aging it. In fact, I think your flavors that are there are probably going to start to fade uh, if you try and age it, particularly if you're already saying you're not getting any of your cinnamon or any of your orange peel. So I would follow your your thoughts in number two, which is go ahead and toast the keg. Yeah, you can very easily make a tincture using uh, some orange peels that you soak in vodka and cinnamon uh, flies perfectly well in, in a tincture. One thing I will tell you about cinnamon is if you do a tincture with it, you'll get all that cinnamon heat, that you know big hot, red hot type burst. If you make a tea with it or tisane, if you want to use the technical term, if you make a tisane with it, you'll get more earthiness. So you could actually do all three of those things and really use that to goose up your, your flavors. I don't think age is going to help you at all because this just sounds like your flavors didn't dissolve into the cake the way that you wanted them to. So, boom. Uh, and I have I have one possible thought here. Um, in Australia, Chris White did a presentation on fermenting under pressure, and he pointed out that fermenting under pressure reduces esters in the beer. So I wonder if maybe that plays into this a little bit also. I mean, obviously, you know, the coriander uh, and stuff may not... Be... Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it'll impact the absorption of you know cinnamon and orange. I think it's just yeah. I, I would not. I wouldn't think so either. And I think it's a long shot, but I think it's a possibility. Yep. So there you go, Chris. I would say dose that keg. Yep. I think that's the way to go, man. Uh, if you're not getting the flavors you need, put them in there, and then you'll get them. Yeah. Just make four ounces of each of those uh, tinctures, and then uh, add them sparingly. But add them. Yeah, and, and you might want to let even taste as you add them to uh, to get the right amount in there. There we go. And, of course, now that's our question. Don't forget that we do have an all Q&A episode coming up uh, shortly. This is episode 81. Our last Q&A episode was episode 72, which, you know, carry the one divide by zero. Duh, 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 duh. means we only have a couple episodes before our next Q&A. So get your questions in, questions at experimentalbrew.com, or you can leave us a voicemail or text us at 626 one ale and now we have to leave you quick tips and something other than beer before we let you get on your way so our quick tip for this week uh, once again comes from somebody other than us and that's the way we like to do it because we only know so much and this actually comes from Sachin, aka chino brews over on reddit and he says i've got a quick tip for you guys to make it easier to rack beer without transferring trube when fermenting put a wedge under the front of the fermenter if you have a racking port or a spigot right under the port or a spigot when the yeast and other trube settles out, it will form a sloped yeast cake relative to the bottom of the fermenter. You will already have more clearance from the sediment. But here's the force multiplier. Ooh, fancy term. Before racking, gingerly slide the wedge to the opposite side of the fermenter without disturbing the sediment. You can now enjoy racking from the deep end of the pool. So there you go. So what Suchin's saying is wedge under, under the side where your spigot or where you're going to transfer from while you're fermenting so everything settles out you know, over on the other side and then very, very gently. And this is the real trick. Very gently move the wedge to the, to underneath the yeast cake so that you now have a deeper wedge of clear liquid. 
So there you go. Not bad. Kind of a useful tip there. I love that tip, Chino. Uh, thanks a lot, man. It is simple. It is effective. Uh, just the way things should be. Yep. Now, there, now, of course, the only thing is you got to figure out how to be gentle. And that's always my problem. Um, <laughs> right. And now, of course, for something other than beer, because life is not just beer or in Denny's case today, apple juice. Right. And I've talked in the past about, you know, several of the books I've been reading. And of course, several listeners have reached out over the time and had said, dude, have you not read anything from Patrick Rothfuss? Uh, to which my response has been, no, because he hasn't been done with any of his series yet. And I hate reading series that are still in flight. Well, I finally gave in and I picked up the very first book of the King Killer Chronicles, a.k.a. The Name of the Wind. And damn it, I wish I hadn't because now I want to read the rest of the books and he's only one more left. He's, the third book is still waiting. Uh, it's so good. If you like high fantasy with some you know, really intricate world building and some elements of both, you know, say medieval society and Roman society mixed into it, uh, you, you definitely got to go read this. It's really kind of fascinating. In a lot of ways, the story really reminds me of, you know, some of the games I used to play when I was a kid, like the Bard's Tale. So by all means, Rothfuss is a great writer, even if he is slow, weaves a hell of a story. So go catch The Name of the Wind, uh, first volume in the King Killer uh, Chronicles. Enjoy it. It's good holiday reading. Cool. When I get done uh, reading through the proof copy of our book, maybe I'll consider that. There you go. How about we get out of here? Let's do that. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a whole bunch of different beer forums, uh, most notably the AHA forum. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Slack Homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and you can also send those questions for our Q&A episode there. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. <laughs>